Amen. I would like to begin tonight by sharing with you a quotation from a famous statesman by the name of Winston Churchill. He said something very interesting that I would like to begin with tonight. He said this, most people sometime in their lives stumble across truth. Most jump up, brush themselves off, and hurry about their business as if nothing had happened. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. Most people, sometime during the course of their life, will indeed stumble across truth. But tragically, most people, when they come across the truth, they jump up, brush themselves off, they continue to live as though they've never heard it. And friends, I plead with you tonight, don't be like that. This evening, we're about to stumble across an amazing, shocking truth in God's Word. A truth that has always been there, and yet the devil has done a good job hiding it from so many people. And as we stumble across this truth tonight, let's not just continue to live as though we never heard it. For whenever we hear truth, God wants us to pick it up to embrace it, to believe it, to follow it. Because Jesus said that when we know the truth, the truth shall make us free. Free from the confusing counterfeits of the Antichrist. Free from worry. And so, when an honest person encounters the truth, that person has two options. Either they're going to follow the truth or they will cease to be an honest person. When an honest person, or what kind of person? Encounters the truth. Either they're going to follow that truth and remain an honest person or they not, they're not going to follow the truth and from that point on, cease, they'll cease to be an honest person. My friends, truth is so important. And tonight we're going to find out the truth about the Antichrist and his greatest deception. i also like to share an allegory with you, which is a, a parable, a story that's intended to teach a lesson. It goes like this. One day there was a man whose name was Truth. What was his name? And Truth was on a mission heading to college place to spread a message of truth to the inhabitants thereof. And as he was traveling down this road going to college place, it was one of those hot summer days. You folks have hot summer days here? It was one of those days. And as he's traveling to college place, the sun is beating on his brow, and the sweat begins to pour down his face, and truth is beginning to get weary with his journey to college place. And all of a sudden, in the journey, he spots a nice pond on the side of the pathway, and he sees the beautiful, refreshing water, and truth decides that he would pause from his journey and refresh himself in this nice, cool water. So that's what he did. He took, a, he took off his beautiful, spotless, pure garments of the truth, laid it reverently to the side, then he jumped in, and he was enjoying this nice, refreshing water. Well, not long after that, there was another man whose name was Lie. What was his name? And Lie was also on a mission to college place to spread lies to the inhabitants thereof. 
And he's driving down that same path. It's the same hot summer day. The sun is beating on his brow and the sweat is pouring down his face. And he's getting weary with his journey when all of a sudden he's beginning to pass by that same pond that Truth was swimming in. And he said, why don't I just refresh myself in this nice water? And so he started to do it when he saw Truth in the water. And then when Lai saw Truth in the water by himself, Lai got a dark idea. He said to himself, instead of joining the water, joining Truth in the water, why don't I steal Truth's clothing? And I'll go to college place, and people will think it's the truth, but really it's just a lie with truth's clothing. So that's what he did. Lie took off his stinky, smelly, crusty garments of lies, and he threw it on the ground. Then he clothed himself in the pure, spotless garments of the truth, and he took off. And as he approached college place, people saw him coming from a distance, and the word began to spread. The word went out. People were saying, hey, the truth is coming. The truth is coming to tell us the truth. And a great crowd gathered together. They were excited to hear the truth. But as, as, as he approached the town, there was a wise man in college place who looked a little bit closer, and he said to the people, wait a minute. That's not the truth. That's just a lie with truth's clothing. Well, not long after that, Truth, who was refreshing himself in the water, decided that he needed to finish his mission. So he got out of the water, and he begins to look for his clothes, but they're nowhere to be found. All he sees is the stinky, smelly, crusty garments of lie on the ground. And when Truth saw that, he was brought face to face with the decision. Either he will clothe himself in the garments of lies, thus contaminating the truth, or he would go to college place in his birthday garments. So he made the right decision. He said, instead of contaminating truth, I will go just as I am. And so he did. And as he approached college place, college place, people saw him coming from a distance. A great crowd began to gather together. And the word went out, hey, the real truth, the real truth is coming to tell us the truth. And as the crowd gathered, that same wise man looked a little bit closer. And he said to the people, wait a minute. Here comes the naked truth. <laughs> oh, you like that one, did you? <laughs> My friends, listen, that's kind of like how this message is tonight. It's the naked truth, friends. You see, so many times, people have been deceived and duped by a lie looking like the truth. That sometimes God sees that in order to really get our attention, he's got to send the naked truth. And friends, whenever God sends truth, it's never to embarrass, but rather to arrest our attention and set us free from the lies clothed in the garments of truth. Can you say amen? It's sometimes God sends truth in a shocking way, in a startling way, the naked truth. And remember, friends, he does it only because he loves us and he cares for our eternal salvation. And so we don't want to lie with truth's clothing. We want the naked truth. How many want the naked truth, friends? Do you? Are you sure? If so, say amen. amen. Well, here comes the naked truth. Who is the Antichrist? And what is his greatest deception? 
Well, like the allegory suggests, most of the time the devil does not appear just as he is because most people won't fall for a 100% lie. However, the devil comes clothed in truth. He comes like a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so the casual surface observer will not be able to discern the danger. And that's how the devil catches most people. This is the nature of the Antichrist. The Apostle Paul made it clear that Satan is an infiltrator. He's not only an opposer, but he's, a, he's an imposter. I want you to notice where Paul said deception would actually come from. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30, please write it down. Write it down, friends. Notice with me on the screen. The apostle Paul said, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in where? Among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. The Apostle Paul in this passage makes it plain that Satan is an infiltrator, that wolves would enter into the flock, leading people astray. That's a lie in the garments of truth. A wolf in sheep's clothing, he said, from your own selves people arise, speaking perversity, speaking things that are not true, to draw away disciples from the truth. You see, the devil doesn't most of the time, he never appears as he really is. Most people won't fall for that. So what he does, friends, he clothes himself in the garments of truth. Outwardly, it looks right, but on the inside, when you really examine it, it's a, it's a flat-out lie. That is the nature of the Antichrist. You see, most people think that the Antichrist is an open political opposer of Christ. That's what majority of Christians believe, friends. They think that the Antichrist is some political, atheistic opposer of Jesus that will sit in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. But friends, the true nature of the Antichrist is that it's a religious imposter. For if you look up the word anti in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, that word anti literally means instead of or in the place of. So Antichrist is one that is not so much openly opposing Christ, but rather one that puts himself instead of Christ or in the place of Christ. In other words, I like to say it like this. Antichrist is not an open political opposer, but rather Antichrist is a subtle religious imposter. One that claims to be Christ. One that claims to represent Christ and be Christ on earth. That's the Antichrist, a lie with the garments of truth, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And friends, when looking for the Antichrist, I want you to remember, who is the original Antichrist? Who is the first one that wanted to put himself in the place of Christ? It is Lucifer, friends. You can find that in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 through 14. We're going to study that more in detail this coming Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Please don't miss it. We're going to talk about that in more in detail. My friends, Lucifer, who became Satan, was the original one that wanted to put himself in the place of Christ. So Satan is the original Antichrist. And whenever we have that selfish, self-righteous spirit, we also have the spirit of Antichrist. When we say to ourselves, I'm going to live my life however I want to live. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to, I'm going to live how I want to live. You're putting yourself 
in the place of Christ. And that, my friends, is the spirit of the Antichrist that anyone can have. And that's that spirit that the Apostle John wrote about in his epistles when he said that many Antichrists are coming to the world. He's talking about that self-righteous, uh, self-sufficient spirit that wants to do its own thing in its own will instead of God's will. So that's the spirit of the Antichrist. But tonight we're not going to focus so much on the spirit of the Antichrist, but rather the system or the kingdom of Antichrist. This kingdom is exposed in prophecy in four main places. Tonight we'll look at two of those four future topics. We can look at the other two. But here's one of them. Please write it down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 talks about the Antichrist and notice it, its characteristics. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, by the way, that day that Paul is writing about here, when you read the context, is referring to the second coming of Christ. When you read the first verse of chapter 2, it's talking about the return of Jesus. So Paul is saying that that day, the second coming, shall not come except there come what first? Of falling away first. In the original Greek, it's the great apostasy. An apostasy will take place within the church before Jesus comes. Of falling away first. And then notice, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Who's going to be revealed? The man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition. Friends, I want you to notice something very, very important here. Bible is clear that the second coming will not happen until the man of sin is revealed first. That's the Antichrist, friends. He's going to be revealed first or before Jesus comes. And the reason why that's important to emphasize is because most Christians believe that the man of sin or the Antichrist will be revealed after the rapture. But this verse makes it plain that it's going to be revealed first. And then it says in verse 4, that man of sin shall be revealed, the son of perdition. Notice what he's going to do. Who opposes and exalts who? Himself. Above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is against God. Is that what it says? Showing himself that what? He is God. Notice, friends, Antichrist is not an open, atheistic, political opposer, but rather a subtle religious imposter. He sits in the temple of God as God, claiming to be God, Antichrist instead of Christ or in the place of Christ. And the Bible calls him the man of sin. What is sin? The breaking of the law. In other words, it's a, it's a system that is against God's law. And by the way, when it says that he is sitting in the temple of God, most people assume that that is a literal rebuilt building in Jerusalem. But friends, I wish I had the time to share with you the subject on Israel and prophecy. We didn't have the time, unfortunately, this week to share that message. Uh, it's on the DVDs, and I'm sure it will be covered in the follow-up programs. But here's the short version. According to the New Testament, do you know what the temple of God is? not a literal building, friends, but rather it's the Christian church. The Apostle Paul, who wrote that in 2 Thessalonians, also wrote, wrote 1 Corinthians 3.16, where he said, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Who is you? That's the Christian community, friends. Those are the believers. We are the temple of God. According to the New Testament theology, temple of God is not a literal building. 
that building was destroyed. We are the temple of God. So when it refers to the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God, it means that he is going to infiltrate Christianity and thus cause a great apostasy, a falling away serve, a time of departing from God's law. The Bible says that he is a son of perdition. Now, there's only one other time in the Bible where it uses the expression son of perdition. And guess who it's referring to? It's talking about Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples. You can find that in John 17, verse 12. Go ahead and write that down. Look it up when you go home. Jesus called Judas the son of perdition. In other words, Judas is a type of the Antichrist. He is a type, a symbol of the, what the Antichrist is. Now tell me, friends, did Judas violently oppose Christ from without? Or did he suddenly betray Christ from within? He was a betrayer, not an open political opposer. That's the nature of the Antichrist. Judas claimed to be a disciple. He looked like a disciple on the outside. He claimed to be a disciple. Outwardly, he was walking with Jesus, but in his heart, he was betraying him. The Bible says that he is the son of perdition. The Antichrist kingdom is just like that. When you look at the Antichrist kingdom, it claims to be a follower of Jesus, friends. But when you look at the teachings, they are betraying that very Jesus that they are claiming to follow. Again, friends, the Antichrist is not an open political opposer, but a subtle religious imposter. If that's clear so far, would you please say amen? Tonight, we're going to unmask him and one of his greatest prophecies through a dramatic prophecy in the book of Daniel. So please take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to repeat and enlarge upon a study we had not only the previous night, but on the second night we were here. Antichrist's greatest deception. What would that be? Daniel 7.25, talking about the Antichrist, it says that they would think to change times and laws is the Antichrist kingdom that would try to change God's times and God's laws. And friends, when you look at the Ten Commandments, there's only one of the Ten Commandments that deals with time. Which one is that? That's the Fourth Commandment. And we're going to discover tonight that it was that time law, the Fourth Commandment, that says, remember the seven-day Sabbath to keep it holy. It was that specific one that the Antichrist kingdom tried to change from Saturday, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week, and almost the entire, not only world, but almost the entire Christian church has been confused and misled by that action. Remember, we learned the last night that we were here that when God gave his eternal law, he wrote something with his own finger on tablets of stone. He gave us a command to remember something, something that was to remind us that he is the creator, he is the provider, he is the sanctifier, he is the savior, he is the Lord and the king. A special day to remind us of who the true God is. The Lord said in Exodus 20, verse 8 through 10, 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the, not the Sabbath of the Jews, 
the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. This is the Lord's day, friends. It's not a Jewish thing. We learned the other night that the Sabbath was given in the beginning of time before a Jew ever existed. It's not a Jewish thing. It's God's day. And God said it's the seventh day. And this is the one that the Antichrist kingdom tried to change from the seventh day, Saturday, to the first day, Sunday. Well, did God change the Sabbath to the first day of the week? Well, let's read. In Psalms 89 verse 34, the Bible says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter. Nor what? What is another word for alter? Change, right? Nor alter or change the word that has gone out of my lips. God says, I'm not going to break my covenant. I'm not going to alter or change that which has come from my lips. Why? Because when God speaks something, he gets it right the first time. It's true when, he got, when God says it. Amen? So what did God speak? Notice Exodus chapter 20. Bible says in verse 1 to 3, And God spoke all these words, saying, Thou shalt know the gods before me. Then God continues to speak the Ten Commandments. So God says, the word that have, that's gone out of my lips, I'm not going to alter or change it. God speaks his law, which shows that God did not change his law. Well, then if he didn't, who tried to do it? The Antichrist kingdom, friends. We learned last night that every single command of God is important. God wrote everyone with his finger. He spoke it. It's a moral law. It did not change from the cross. It did not change after the resurrection. Bible says in James 2 verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of how much? Guilty of all. When you break one, you're guilty of all, the Bible says. God, does, as I mentioned, God doesn't give 10% discounts when it comes to his law. Every single one of them are important. And some people, you know, I, I should say, almost everyone agrees that thou shalt not kill has never been changed. Every pastor agrees thou shalt not steal has never been changed. The resurrection didn't change thou shalt not steal. The cross didn't change thou shalt not commit adultery. You see, no one has a problem with nine of the Ten Commandments. Every church agrees in nine of the Ten Commandments. But for some reason, when it comes to the Fourth Commandment, the one that says, remember, that's the one that most people forgot. They sweep it under the rug. They say, oh, that's just for the Jews. Well, friends, if the Sabbath is just for the Jews, thou shalt not kill is just for the Jews too. You see, we can't pick and choose. Either they all fall together or they all stand together because we can't divorce the Fourth Commandment from the rest of the Ten. The Bible says it very clearly right here. If you break one, you're guilty of all. And so we're going to discover, friends, that God never did change the Sabbath. The seven-day Sabbath was the same before the cross, and it remains the same after the cross. Well, then, who did? Who tried to change it? Prophecy reveals, friends, that Satan tried to change God's times and laws. And we're going to unmask exactly who this was. But I want us to remember just before we go to the prophecy in Daniel. Remember, friends, that it's much more than just choosing what day you go to church. Really, it's about choosing who's your master. Because you can go to church every day of the week if you want. You can worship God, and you ought to worship God every single day of the week. But the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, is much more than when you worship or where you go to church. It's about who's your master because remember the Sabbath is a sign that God is the true creator, that he is the true Lord. But remember, for every truth that God has, Satan has invented a counterfeit. 
And what is a counterfeit? It's something that looks real, seems real, and sounds real, but it's fake. For every single truth in God's word, there's a counterfeit. A counterfeit is a mixture of truth and error together. And so Satan said, if, 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 the true, if God set apart a day to remind the world that he is the true God, I want to be God, so I'm going to set apart my own day as well. And we're going to see tonight that the day that the devil chose was the first day of the week. So listen, friends, the issue between Sabbath and Sunday is much more than when you worship or what day you go to church. It's really about who's your Lord, who's your master, who's your God. It's a deeper issue than just what day you go to church. It's about the genuine versus the counterfeit, truth versus error. Christ versus Satan. And friends, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that those who, uh, those who go on the first day of the week are automatically under the banner of the enemy because remember what I said the other night? Most people who keep the first day of the week have never heard about the seven-day Sabbath. And that, that they grew up keeping Sunday all their lives. And they don't know, friends. And if they're not aware and yet they're following all they know to be true in sincerity because they love God, God recognizes them as his children. And they're going to be in God's kingdom by God's grace. Can you say Amen. So in the times that we don't know, Acts 17.30 says, God overlooks. James 4.17, to him who knows to do good but does not do it, to him it is sin. To who? To the one that knows. But most people don't know. They never heard this before. It's an unpopular truth. But it's the naked truth. And so, who exactly is the Antichrist? Well, let's read Daniel 7. Beginning with verse 2. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 2. Listen, friends, the only way to be able to discern the difference between Satan's counterfeit and God's genuine, the only way you can discern between those, because they look very much alike. A lie clothed with truth looks like the truth. So the only way you can really discern the difference between the two is not by what most people are doing. Not, what, not by what the popular theologians are saying. Not by what a pastor or a man says. The way that you discern the difference between truth and error, the genuine and the counterfeit, is a thus saith the Lord, and then it is written. The word of God, friends, dispels the confusion. Amen? Remember, what is popular is not always right. And what is right is not always popular. So let's read Daniel 7, verse 2. It says, are you there? Amen? Daniel spake and said, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. You remember this prophecy? We studied this the second night that we were out here. For those who were here on the second night, you would remember this. If you were not here, uh, make sure you ask for the handout. We can get you caught up with that study. But for the sake of time, because we've already covered this, we would just review very quickly. What do these four beasts represent that comes out of this windy seascape? Write it down. The sea or the waters represents a multitude of people. You find that in Revelation 17, 15. The wind that's blowing on the water represents war, strife, desolation, and destruction. According to Proverbs 1, verse 27. These beasts that rise up out of the water represent kings or, and kingdoms. According to Daniel 7, verse 17 and verse 23. Since we're right there, let's go ahead and read that very quickly. Notice what the Bible says in Daniel 7, verse 17. It says, These great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Jump down to verse 23. 
Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth what? Kingdom upon the earth. And so when you let the Bible interpret itself, it's not hard to understand what God is trying to communicate. We're not giving our own personal interpretation. We're letting the Bible interpret itself. When Daniel sees a windy seascape and four beasts rise to power, he is basically saying that he sees multitudes of people fighting and warring and destroying each other. And from the multitude of wars, four kingdoms rise to power. These are the superpowers of prophecy that we talked about the other night. These four beasts are parallel with the four metals on the image of Daniel chapter 2, representing Babylon. Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then after that, something else. And so we already covered this. How many of you remember this? Do you remember this? And so we're not going to go through it again. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Lion, bear, leopard, terrible beasts. Gold, silver, brass, iron. Those things are parallel. God is repeating and enlarging. It represents these four kingdoms. So what we're going to do since we already covered this, we're going to skip to the fourth beast. The what number beast, everyone? The fourth beast, we learn, is the pagan Roman Empire. The pagan Roman Empire. History tells us they reigned from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. Then Daniel sees in prophetic vision ten horns that rise up out of that fourth beast. These ten horns are parallel with the ten toes on the image of Daniel chapter 2. Representing the fact that Rome was not conquered by a fifth beast or a fifth kingdom, but rather Rome was divided into ten different kingdoms. What do the ten horns represent? I want you to notice what it says. Daniel 7, verse 24, you can read it in your Bible. It's also on the screen. It says, and the ten horns out of this kingdom, out of which kingdom is this kingdom? Out of Rome, right? The fourth beast, the terrible beast with the iron teeth and ten horns. That's the pagan Roman Empire. So the Bible says, the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And history confirms what the Bible had predicted. History tells us that barbarian tribes came from the north and began to conquer different territories of the vast Roman Empire. And just as there are ten horns on the beast and ten uh, toes on the image, Rome was broken up into ten different kingdoms. They are as follows on the screen. The Alamanni, who are the modern Germans. The Burgundians, who are the Swiss. The Franks, who are the French. The Lombards, who are the Italians. The Anglo-Saxons, who are the English. The Suevi, who are the Portuguese. The Visigoths, who are the Spanish. And then you have the Heruli, Vandals, and Ostrogoths, nations that are extinct today. They no longer exist, but they were a part of the original ten. And we will see why they no longer exist in just a moment. My friends, the ten horns, or divided Rome, the divided kingdoms of Rome or Europe, came into existence in 476 A.D. In what year, friends? That's when the ten horns, all of them, were in existence. That's when this prophecy would be fulfilled, 476 A.D. Now, after Daniel sees the ten horns, he then sees a little horn rising. And that little horn is the Antichrist kingdom that tried to change God's Sabbath from Saturday the seventh day of the week to Sunday the first day of the week and almost the entire world has been mis uh, misled by this kingdom. 
I want you to notice the description now of this kingdom. We're going to find out who is this little horn antichrist kingdom. And by the time we're finished, you will know without a shadow of a doubt. No guessing or speculating. Why? Because we're going to look at ten fingerprints. How many? Ten fingerprints. Ten identifying characteristics of this little horn antichrist kingdom. We're going to go through them together and I hope you'll write them down. Notice, Daniel 7, verse 8, God now gives the characteristics, the fingerprints of the Antichrist. And notice what it says. You can read it in your Bible. It's also on the screen. It says, I consider the horns, and behold, there came up where? Among them, another, what kind of horn? Little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. In that verse, we just found our first four fingerprints of the Antichrist. Write them down. Number one, this little horn comes out of the fourth beast. And we know that the fourth beast is the pagan Roman Empire. So characteristic number one, this little horn is a kingdom that comes out of pagan Rome. It's a kingdom that comes from pagan Rome. Characteristic two, it says it's a little horn that comes up among the ten horns. What does that mean? It's a small kingdom, a little kingdom, that's located somewhere in Western Europe. Why? Because that's where the ten horns were, Western Europe. So if the little horn comes up among the ten horns, that gives us the geographical location of where this kingdom is located. A little kingdom located in Western Europe. It's a continuation of pagan Rome. Number three, it must rise to power after the year 476 A.D. Because it was in that year that the ten horns came into existence. And the Bible says that the little horn came up after them. So if the little horn came up after them, that means it had to rise to power after the year 476 A.D. And then it says that as this little horn rises, it uproots three of the first ten horns. What does that mean? it would destroy three of those kingdoms, three of those ten kingdoms. And friends, if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Friends, all we're doing is letting the Bible interpret itself. Now let's take a look at more characteristics. The rest of verse 8 says this, And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of what? Man and a mouth speaking great things. Another place says a mouth speaking blasphemies against God. So the Bible says in this horn, eyes like the eyes of man. Not the eyes of God, but the eyes of man. You know what that represents? You see, according to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 9, back in the day, a prophet was called a seer. A prophet was called a what? Because they would see with the eyes of God. They would see with heavenly vision, not their own limited human vision. They were called a seer. So when the Bible says that this little horn has the eyes like the eyes of man, it's because it is a kingdom that she claims to see or speak for God. It claims to be a prophet. But it's not led by the revelation of God, the eyes of God. It's led by the limited vision of the eyes of man. It's a false prophet, and that's why it would speak blasphemy against God. A man at the head of this kingdom 
that claims to speak for God but does not speak the things of God. So that's the next two characteristics. Characteristic five, write it down. A man at the head that leads by his human wisdom. Not divine revelation, but human wisdom. And number six, a false prophet who speaks blasphemy against the Lord. And friends, the biblical definition of blasphemy, according to John chapter 10, is when a man claims to be God on earth. And in Luke chapter 5, another definition of blasphemy, when a man claims to have the power to forgive sins. So that's the man at the head of this kingdom. If that makes sense, please say amen. All right, let's take a look at more characteristics. Now jumping to verse 24, it says, Another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and shall subdue three kings. So this, so this little horn, again, it comes up after the ten horns. The Bible says it's diverse. So we're going to see tonight that it's diverse or different because it's not just political like the rest of the ten horns were. This little horn is political and it's religious. It's, a, it's not just a state like the rest of the ten horns were. It's different because it's also a church. It is a church-state union. That's what makes this little horn diverse from the rest of the first horns. It is a political, religious power, a union of church and state together. That's why it receives worship, and it can claim to speak for God. It claims to be a religious power. Now let's take a look at the last three characteristics. In verse 25, it says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time, times in the plural, and the dividing of time. So there's our last three characteristics. Write them down. Characteristic number eight, Bible says it would wear out the saints of the Most High. That simply means it would persecute God's saints, God's people. It would be a persecutor of the church a persecutor of God's true people. Number nine, it would think to change times and laws, trying to change God's times and laws and trying to change the Sabbath from Saturday the seventh day of the week to Sunday the first day of the week. And then the Bible even tells us how long this little horn kingdom would reign. It says it would reign for a time, singular, times, that's plural, or two, and the dividing of time, which is half of time. Time, times, and half a time. Well, how long is that? Well, friends, when you study the Bible carefully, you would discover that time is one year. And according to the Hebrew year, there are 360 days in the Hebrew calendar. Times in the plural is two years, that's 720 days. Half a time is half a year, that's 180 days. So you add up all the days this kingdom would reign for, it's a total of 1,260 days. That's how long it would rain, 1,260 days. But are these literal days or are they prophetic days? My friends, it's a prophetic day because it's in a prophetic, symbolic context. And I want to introduce you to this prophetic time key that is helpful to understand whenever prophecy talks about time. And that is simply this. In Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. One day equals one literal year in prophecy. A prophetic day equals a literal year. You find that in Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6. Each day for a year. You also find that in Numbers 14 verse 34. 
Ezekiel 4.6, Numbers 14.34, many scholars from many different churches agree that in a prophetic symbolic context, one prophetic day equals one literal year. And so, 1,260 prophetic days is the same thing as 1,260 literal years. Listen, friends, you can't say that the horn is symbolic, but the time is literal. That would be inconsistent. You can't say that, uh, that the time is literal. If, if, if you say that the time is literal, then that means the horn is literal too. It's a symbolic horn representing a kingdom. A symbolic day representing a year. If that's clear, would you please say amen? I wish we had the time to go more into that. But we'll, we'll cover that more in detail on future studies. So notice, ten fingerprints. If you missed it, write it down quickly. If you're too slow to write it down, take out your smartphone and take a picture. If you don't have one of those, just wait for the handout you get on your way out tonight. <laughs> Let's go through them together, shall we? Number one, it comes up out of the fourth beast. The fourth beast is pagan Rome. So characteristic one, it's a kingdom that comes out of pagan Rome. It is actually a kingdom that is a continuation of pagan Rome. Number two, it's a little horn located among the ten horns. What does that mean? A little kingdom located right there in Western Europe. That's where the rest of the ten horns were. Number three, it must rise to power after 467 AD because it comes up after the ten horns, and that's the year that the ten horns came into existence. Number four, it would destroy three other kingdoms as it rises to power. Number five, it's led by the human wisdom of a man, not the eyes of God, but the eyes of man. Number six, it would speak blasphemy. Number seven, it would be different because it's not just political, it's also religious. Number eight, it would persecute God's people. Number nine, it would think to change God's times and laws. And number 10, it would reign for exactly 1,260 prophetic days or literal years. These are 10 fingerprints. And with these fingerprints, we can know without a shadow of a doubt the exact identity, identity of the Antichrist. It is clear as day, friends. But let me ask you a question. Where did we get these characteristics from? Did I pull it out of the air somewhere? Did I make this up? Where did we get it from, friends? Tell me. We got it straight from the Bible, didn't we? We just let the Bible interpret itself. And friends, when you look at the, the characteristics, you're already thinking, okay, Western Europe, okay, little kingdom somewhere in Western Europe. It's a continuation of Rome. Uh, it's, there's a man at the head that claims to speak for God. It, it's different because it's not just a kingdom, it's also a church. It, 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 it claimed to change God. Friends, it's obvious. Some of you already know who exactly is this Antichrist kingdom. Well, friends, before we let history tell us, there's something important we, we got to understand tonight, friends. And that is this. Please listen to my heart tonight. This is a shocking truth. It is a difficult truth to share. It's not something that I take pleasure in revealing. Really, it's the naked truth. But remember that God sends truth never to embarrass people, never to condemn anyone. He only sends truth to enlighten us and liberate us from the confusion of the counterfeits. And let me tell you, friends, we're about to discover who the Antichrist kingdom is. But you got to know, friends, that many of God's people are part of this kingdom. 
There are individuals who were born and raised in this kingdom that love God. They're sincere. They're following God the best they know. And if they're sincere following him the best they know, many of them are going to be in God's kingdom for eternity. Amen? Because God doesn't hold us accountable to something we've never heard before, only to the light that we have. And the, Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom little is given, little is required. God judges us based upon the light and the knowledge we have. And God loves everyone in this kingdom. So in exposing this, the Antichrist, God is not talking about the people that are part of the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom itself. The institution, the structure, the hierarchy, it's the kingdom, not the people. You might discover tonight that you are part of this kingdom. It's not against you. No one needs to feel offended and stand up and walk out. We're not talking about people. For God so loved the world. He's not wanting that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. Jesus died for every single one of us, and his love is the same for all. Can you say amen? Even those who are unknowingly propagating false doctrine, God sees their hearts. And he's desperately trying to reveal the naked truth to them so that they can be made free from a lie with the garments of truth. So no one needs to feel offended tonight. I have family members a part of this kingdom that I love with all my heart. I would never want to do anything to, 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 to hurt them or offend them. And so keep that in mind, friends. We don't stand in judgment upon any person's individual walk with the Lord. God is the judge of the heart. Amen. We don't judge anyone. God is the judge. However, Jesus did say you shall know them by their fruit. We have permission to examine the fruit, and we ought to. We can't examine the root. We don't know the motive or the intention of someone's heart. That's God's to judge. However, we can look at the fruit. We can look at the theology. We can look at the characteristics, and that's basically what we're doing tonight. And so, how many of you want to know who the Antichrist kingdom is? This kingdom that rose out of Western Europe, that is a continuation of Rome, that uprooted and destroyed three other kingdoms, that is led by the human wisdom of man that speaks blasphemy against God. How many of you want to know who this kingdom is? Do you want to know? Some of you look like you don't want to know. Do you want to know? If you want to know, let me hear you say amen. Are you sure you want to know? Say amen again. Well, here comes the naked truth, friends. Oh, it's hard, but friends, listen with your heart tonight. I'm not going to tell you, by the way. I'm going to let history tell us who exactly this kingdom is that arose in Western Europe, who sprung up out of the pagan Roman Empire. Here's what history says, and I'm going to give you the histor these historical quotations on a handout on your way out tonight. All these quotations we're about to read, you'll receive on the handout so that you can check for yourself and know that it's not something that a man is making up. Here's what history says. The Monumental History of Christianity, page 42 and 43, it says this. Out of the ruins of the what empire? Roman Empire. What number beast was the Roman Empire? That's the fourth beast right there. Out of the ruins of the Roman Empire, there gradually arose a new order of states. What were that new order of states? That's the ten horns. Divided Rome. Whose central point was the papal sea. Therefore, inevitably, resulted a position not only new, but very, what? Different from the former. Why? Because the papal see wasn't just a political kingdom. It was also a religious institution or a church. That's why it's very different, just as God's word said. My friends, listen, make no mistake about it. The Antichrist little horn kingdom described in Daniel 7 is none other than the Roman church state system. Not the people, 
but the system, the institution, the kingdom itself. God has many of his people in this system that are going to be in heaven, friends. God is talking about the people. God is talking about the system, the kingdom. When you think about it, the papacy is a continuation of Rome. They're called the Roman Church. Not only that, but the Vatican is the smallest country in the world. It's a little horn located right there in Western Europe at the former headquarters of the pagan Roman Empire. It's a little horn, the smallest country in the world. Vatican City is only 0.2 square miles. I was there a few years ago, walked all over it. Monaco, the second smallest country in the world, is 0.7. Then Nauru, 8.5 square miles. It's a little horn, a little kingdom. It rose to power after the year 476. In the year 538 AD, it rose to power. It uprooted three kingdoms when it rose to power. It's different because it's not only political but religious. It's led by the human wisdom of priests and popes who claim to speak for God but do not speak the things of, of God's word. It was a persecuting power in history that has put to death over 50 million of, 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 of the believers. And it ruled for exactly 1,260 years according to history. Do you remember, friends, the ten horns? Three of them are extinct today. The Herli, Vandals, and Ostrogoths. Those were the three horns that were uprooted by the little horn. And history makes it plain, friends. It was the Herolite kingdom that met their fate with the Catholic Emperor Zeno in the year 493 AD. Then another emperor, Justinian, exterminated the Vandals in 534 AD before finally breaking the power of the Ostrogoth kingdom in what year? In 538 AD. And it was in that year, 538 A.D., that Justinian made a decree that established the bishop of Rome as the political and religious leader of Western Rome. So exactly after uprooting three kingdoms, the little horn kingdom, the papacy, begins its reign. It would begin in the year 538 A.D., and then you add 1,260 years, brings you to 1798. And according to history, that is the exact time period that the little horn antichrist kingdom ruled the world this is known in history as the dark ages as the what ages do you know why it's called the dark ages because that church made it illegal to read and own the bible god's word is the light friends the bible says thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path but the people the common people were forbidden to read or own a bible only the priests were allowed to read and interpret the Bible. And if the common people were found with a portion of scriptures, they would be burnt alive at the hands of the Roman church state system. And so when you take away God's light, the word, you have the dark ages. That's what happened, friends. It's a very sad history, but prophecy predicted it, and we're see, we see that it actually took place. Then the Encyclopedia Americana says that in 1798, he, that is the French General Berthier, made his entrance into Rome, abolished the papal government, and established a secular one. 538 AD to 1798 is exactly 1,260 years. And secular history makes it plain that that's when the Antichrist kingdom, the, the papacy, was stripped from its power. My friends, it's no surprise. It's obvious. The papacy has set themselves up as God of the earth, representatives of God on earth. In fact, notice what they say. In these quotations from their own writings, from their own leaders, you'll receive on the handout on your way out tonight. But here's what they say, friends. 
Pope Leo XIII said, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Remember what the word antichrist means. It doesn't mean openly against Christ. Anti means instead of or in the place of Christ. They say we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Here's another one from their own writings. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh, claiming to be Christ on earth. Here's another one, friends, from their own writings. The Pope and God are the same, so he has all power in heaven and earth. These are great words, friends. Another one. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he's not a mere man, but as it were, God and the vicar of God. Here's the teachings of the church. They say, we hold that place. We are in the place of Christ on earth. That's exactly what the word anti means. In fact, the man at the head of this kingdom, his official title is vicar of Christ. You see it right there, vicar of God or vicar of Christ. And you'll find it amazing that the Latin word vicar is the exact same equivalent to the Greek word anti. It's the same thing. The word vicar in Latin and the word anti in Greek means the same thing instead of Christ or in the place of Christ. So then when they say that, that, that the man at the head is the vicar of Christ, they're basically saying we are the anti-Christ. Again, what does that mean? Not openly opposing him, but taking the place of him. And friends, it was this kingdom that Bible prophecy predicted would think to change God's times and God's laws. Trying to change the Sabbath from Saturday, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week. Did this kingdom claim to have made that change? Now I want to read you. These are strong words. Listen, listen. It's the naked truth. But remember, friends, we're not talking about the people. We don't stand in judgment upon any single personal individual's walk with God. We're talking about the kingdom, the system, the institution. So no one needs to feel offended tonight. Amen? It's not against people. It's the kingdom. But here's what the kingdom claims. Here's what they say. The Pope has power to change times, to abrogate laws, and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. The Pope has the authority and often exercised it to dispense with the command of Christ. That's what they say about themselves, not what some other church says about them. They say, we have that power almost quoting the exact words the Bible uses, claiming to change God's times and God's laws. Here's another one. It's the naked truth. It's strong. Notice. Here's what they say. To believe that our Lord God the Pope has not the power to decree as he is decreed is to be deemed heretical. In other words, they're saying if you dare question the Lord, Lord God the Pope and his word, if you question his authority, that's heretical. That's heresy. And during the Dark Ages, heresy was a crime punishable by being burnt alive at the stake. That's what the church says. Now listen, I know that many Catholics don't believe this. Most Catholics, when they're worshiping, they're not worshiping the Pope. That's why, again, friends, God is not talking about the people in the system that are sincere. He's talking about the system itself. Amen? I can't overemphasize that, that, that enough. I can't emphasize that enough. The Faith of Our Fathers, page 89, another famous Catholic author, James Cardinal Gibbons, he said this. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line 
authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. And my friends, that's a true statement, 100%. I agree, friends, not even one verse in the Bible that, that justifies the keeping of Sunday as the Sabbath, not even one. You think if something was so well established in Christendom, there ought to at least be one verse, but not even one, friends. So they acknowledge, yes, Saturday, the Sabbath is the true biblical day. Well, then notice, for the Converse Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, and by the way, I have this book. I brought a few copies, too, for those who are interested in picking this up. But on page 50 of this book, Converse Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, here's the question. Which day is the Sabbath day? Their answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Well, then the next question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Their answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transfers solemnity from Saturday to Sunday, claiming to change God's times and God's laws. Here's another one. In the Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 4, page 153, it says, The church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week, stop right there, they called it a Jewish Sabbath, but we know better, don't we? Is it a Jewish Sabbath? Of course not. What kind of Sabbath is it? It's the Sabbath of the Lord because it was given in the Garden of Eden before a Jew ever existed. It's not a Jewish thing. But nonetheless, they blame it on the Jews, of course. The Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week. They say they made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept as the Lord's day. They say we're the ones that changed the third commandment from Sabbath to Sunday. They say we made the change. But they call it the third commandment. But what number commandment is the Sabbath commandment in the Bible? It's the fourth. Well, why do they call it the third? Well, here's the reason, friends. The church not only tried to change the Sabbath commandment, but they completely deleted the second commandment in God's law that had to do with bowing down and worshiping idols. When you read the catechism, the second commandment is completely gone. Here's what you'll find in the catechism. Number one, they did away with the second commandment. That's the only way they could justify the bringing of statues and pictures and idols and praying to the saints. They had to get rid of the second commandment. That's what happened. Number two, they shortened the fourth commandment from 94 words to just eight words in the catechism. And then number, number three, they divided the tenth commandment into two commandments. So commandment number nine in the catechism says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, claiming to change God's times and God's laws, claiming to do something that God would never do. I want to read you now a few more statements. These are strong words. Listen, friends, it's the naked truth. But let me remind you quickly, it's not about the people. It's about the kingdom, the institution, the structure, the hierarchy. That's what God is exposing tonight. Why? Because he loves every person that's in the kingdom that are sincerely trying to follow him with all their hearts. Carl Keating is another famous, famous Catholic author. And notice what he said. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday. Yet there's no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. And again, that's a true statement, friends. Not one verse. But then they say, the Jewish Sabbath, again, they blame it on the Jews, but we know better, it's not a Jewish thing. But they call it the Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the what? Of the resurrection. They say, we are the ones that made the change from Saturday to Sunday, and their justification, they say, is that we're going to do it to honor the resurrection of Christ. Now, we know the Bible says clearly that Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week. We know that that's Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. That's why people, most Christians call it Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection. 
And so they say, we're going to keep the day of resurrection, or we're going to keep Sunday as the Sabbath to honor the resurrection. And friends, it's a beautiful thing to want to honor the resurrection of the Lord. I have no problem with wanting to honor the resurrection of the Lord. We ought to honor the resurrection of the Lord. But we cannot honor the resurrection of the Lord while at the same time dishonoring the seven-day Sabbath. That, my friends, it doesn't make any sense. So then how can we honor the resurrection of the Lord? We do it like how the Bible teaches by baptism. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 that when we're baptized, we're baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection. So let's honor the resurrection by being baptized in Jesus' name. Can you say amen? Not trying to change what God wrote with his finger on stone. That, my friends, doesn't make any sense. A few more statements. The controversial catechism. This one is uh, very, very up, uh, confrontational. Here's what the question is asked. When Protestants do profane work upon Saturday or the seventh day of the week, do they follow the scriptures as their only rule of faith? Because, you know, that's what the Protestants claim. They claim to go by the Bible and the Bible only. That's the Protestant cry, sola scriptura. The Bible is the only rule of faith, not the traditions or the teachings of a man, but the Bible only. So the church is saying, in keeping Sunday, are you really following the Bible alone? Their answer, on the contrary, they have only the authority of tradition for this practice. In profaning Saturday, they violate one of God's commandments, which he has never clearly abrogated. Remember thou keep holy the Sabbath day. The church is pointing out an inconsistency within Protestantism. In keeping Sunday, they're not really going by the Bible alone. The only authority for keeping the first day of the week is the tradition of a church and state system that the Bible identifies as the Antichrist. Here's another one. Like two sacred rivers flowing from paradise, the Bible and divine tradition contain the Word of God. So notice, friends, the Roman church state system, they claim to believe in the Bible and divine tradition. They're not openly against it. They claim to have both, Bible and divine tradition. But then notice, though these two divine streams are of equal sacredness and are both full of revealed truth, truths, still of the two, tradition is to us more clear and safe. So when it comes between the Bible and tradition, they're going to pick tradition. They say it's more clear and safe. Well, friends, is that true? Is it really more clear and safe to follow the traditions of men than God's word? Jesus warned us about this over and over again. In Matthew 15, verse 3 and verse 6, Jesus said, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Thus you have made the command of, commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. My friends, listen, there's nothing wrong with tradition in and of itself. We have cultural tradition, traditions, family traditions. Nothing wrong with traditions unless that tradition violates God's word. If any tradition we hold, whether it be something cultural or historical or family, including something religious like Sunday worship, that's a tradition. If that tradition violates the word, then that tradition must be laid on the altar of sacrifice. We ought to obey God rather than men. Can you say amen? And then Jesus said in verse 8 and 9 of the same chapter, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments not of God, but the commandments of Jesus said that when we try to worship him, that when we try to uh, teach doctrines that are based upon the commandments of men and worship him, the Bible says that's vain worship. And friends, I don't know about you, 
but I don't want to worship God in vain. I want to worship God in spirit and in truth. Amen? So when you look at this, it really comes down to this. Who's your master? Who do you love? Who will you obey? Who will you follow? The Antichrist or Jesus Christ? Truth or error? The genuine or the counterfeit? Friends, it's either one or the other. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. It's either we're on one side or the other. Bible says that if we're lukewarm, we'll be spewed out. Bible says if we're double-minded, we can't please God. And so today, friends, as you see the Sabbath Sunday issue, recognizing that it's more than just what day you choose to go to church, but who your Lord and Master is, let's choose Jesus. Amen? He's the only one that can save us. Here's another one. Canon and tradition. Page 263, the church writes this. The authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of the scriptures because the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by command of Christ, but by its own authority. My friends, listen, this power places church authority above God's word. This is an antichrist way of thinking, a kingdom that claimed to do something not even God would do. The Bible says in Malachi 3 verse 6, I am the Lord, I always change. Is that what God says? I am the Lord and I. Why does God not change? Because he's already perfect. What he does is perfect. His law is perfect. God doesn't need to change. We need changing, amen? We see, friends, that Adam and Eve kept the Sabbath way back in the Garden of Eden. Before Jew existed and before sin existed, the Sabbath was there as a gift to the entire human race. The Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments that everyone agrees is still valid. Jesus himself, who is our example, kept the Sabbath. Luke 4, 16. The disciples kept the Sabbath. The early church, after the resurrection in the book of Acts, kept the seven-day Sabbath. God's end-time people in Revelation will keep the Sabbath. We're even going to keep the Sabbath in heaven. But here we find man tried to change it. And about this time, it's important for me to ask you a question. And here's the question, friends. How many legs does a spider have? How many? Eight. Are you sure about that? Wait a minute. Are you sure about that? Eight? How many of you say the spider has eight legs? Go ahead and raise your hand. Are you sure? How many of you say the spider has six legs? How many of you think the fighter, spider has seven legs? How many of you don't know how many legs the spider has? <laughs> oh, friends, listen. Did you know that for over 20 centuries, people believed that spiders only had six legs? Why? Because a Greek philosopher by the name of Aristotle, he wrote and spoke. He said spiders only had six legs. And people said, wow, Aristotle said it. It must be true. You know, he's a smart guy. He's an intellectual. He's spent many years studying. And so if Aristotle said it, it must be true. And that's what people believed for 20 centuries until finally 20 centuries later, someone bothered to count. And lo and behold, the spider has eight legs. <laughs> What's the point? The point is this. Check for yourself. Don't take a man's word, friends. I'm not asking you to believe a word you're hearing tonight just because I'm saying it. And you should not believe something just because someone is saying it. Use the mind that God has given you. Do your research. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Stop being so content of being spoon-fed by the minister. Some people are so shallow-minded, they say, oh, if my pastor said it, it must be true. But Jesus said that there will be many false Christs and false prophets in the last days. The Bible says, cursed be the man that trusts in man. You go to the Bible for yourself, friends. What's popular is not always right. What's right is not always popular. And friends, I promise you that when you study the Word of God contextually, 
gathering all the evidence. Study it, not just one or two verses pulled out of context, but read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Gather all the cooperating verses. Read it in its context. Compare scripture with scripture. Challenge every human assumption you bring to the passage. And when you come with an open mind and an open heart, you will discover, friends, what the truth is, and you will learn that the spider has eight legs. Amen? And so check for yourself, friends. What I love about truth is that it stands for itself. If something is not true, it will fall when critically examined, just like how Sunday falls. Sunday, where's one verse? Not even one. It falls. But if something is true, it will stand for itself. Amen? And that's the case with the seven-day Sabbath. Friends, before we go home tonight, I need to quickly tell you the history. The history of how... The Antichrist kingdom caused almost the entire Christian world to forget the very commandment God said, remember. How, how did this take place? Well, here's the history. Ancient pagan religions worshiped the sun, the S-U-N, in the heavens. The Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Romans, they bowed down and worshiped the sun. Sun worship was the, was, was the main worship in pagan practices. And guess which day... The sun worship, worshipers worship the sun god, especially Sunday, the first day of the week. Sunday worship is a pagan institution, and it was this pagan practice that crept within the church. In fact, the church even acknowledges that Sunday worship didn't really come from the resurrection of Christ. It came from paganism. Here's what the church acknowledges in this statement. The sun was the foremost god with heathendom. The sun has worshipers at this hour in Persia and in other lands. There is, in truth, something royal, kingly about the sun, making it a fit emblem of Jesus, the son of justice. Hence the church in these countries, hence the church would seem to have said, keep that old pagan name. It shall remain consecrated, sanctified. And thus the pagan Sunday, dedicated to Balder, which is a pagan god, became the Christian Sunday, sacred to Jesus. They, they acknowledge, friends, that Sunday worship actually came from paganism. That was the day in which they worshiped the sun god. Well, how could this change from Sabbath to Sunday actually occur? Well, listen, friends, it happened gradually. How? Over centuries. How long? Centuries of compromise and persecution. Allow me quickly to tell you the historical setting of how the change actually took place. It started in the days of Constantine where the pagan Roman Empire who worshipped the sun god on Sunday, the empire was falling apart. And paganism, Sunday worship, that was the state religion in the pagan Roman Empire. But then there was a new religion that was growing so rapidly, Christianity. And the Christians were being persecuted by the pagan Romans. The Christians worshiped the S-O-N, the Son of God, and they worshiped him on the seven-day Sabbath. The pagans didn't like it. They were persecuting the Christians. But the more the church was persecuted, the more they grew. Why? Because Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against this church. So though the Christians were put to death, they continued to grow and multiply and, and, and very rapidly began to increase. And Constantine saw that there was a problem. He realized that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Two religions, his kingdom won't last. He will lose his power. Rome would fall. So in order to save the Roman Empire, Constantine had to unite the two religions, paganism and Christianity. So what happened was this. Constantine re renounced paganism and claimed to have converted to Christianity. 
but he did not really convert in heart. It was strictly a political move to save his kingdom. So he claimed to convert to Christianity, and as the emperor of Rome, he made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. So from being pagan Rome, it became papal Rome. And then to help the pagans convert to Christianity, he brought in pagan practices into the church. That's where the bowing down and the worshiping or the praying to statues and pictures came from. Those were pagan practices brought into the church. And a part of that was the Sunday worship. Those who protested against these practices were persecuted and put to death over centuries of persecution. And then in the year 321 A.D., write it down, 321 A.D., Constantine passed the first Sunday law to unite his divided empire, making Sunday worship a law of the state. You see, at first they were worshiping on both days, Sabbath and Sunday. Then Constantine made that Sunday law to try to unite the divided empire, the two religions, 321 A.D. But then in 364 A.D., Constantine, or excuse me, not Constantine, but at the Council of Laodicea, the church completely outlawed Sabbath-keeping altogether. And here's the statement of the Council of Laodicea, 364 AD. Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday, but shall work on that day. But the Lord's day, they shall especially honor. They're referring to the Lord's day as Sunday, but we know better. The true Lord's day is Sabbath. And as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, they're found Judaizing, they shall be shut out from Christ. So, th- so this made the sab- keeping the seven-day Sabbath uh, 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 illegal. And those who dared oppose this law, those who wanted to remain faithful to Jesus and his word, guess what happened to them? They were hunted down like wild animals. They were burnt alive at the stake. And history tells us that not less than 50 million Christians died during the dark ages at the, at, at, during this time at the hands of the Roman church state system. And their only crime was that they were trying to follow the Bible and Jesus. Amen? It's a very sad history, friends. And so what happened was this. Sabbath was forgotten. Over centuries of persecution and compromise, Sabbath's forgotten, Sunday was the acceptable day. But then during the 16th century Reformation, when the Protestant churches broke away from the Mother Catholic Church, they protested against the idols and the veneration of Mary, but those Protestant churches brought with them the Sunday worship. And that, my friends, is the reason why almost every single church has forgotten the very commandment God specifically said, remember. That's the history the naked truth, friends. The devil is a master deceiver. Jesus said concerning Satan that he is a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of it. You see, the devil is a master deceiver. Think about it. Think about it. If Satan was successful in deceiving one-third of the holy, sinless angels in heaven, And if Satan was successful in deceiving Eve in the Garden of Eden in her perfect sinless state, how much more easier it is for Satan to deceive us who are weakened by sin? My friends, if Satan could deceive a third of the holy angels, don't you think that you're immune to deception? But friends, we can be immune to deception as long as we test all things by the Word of God. Friends, it's the naked truth. It's a solemn, even shocking truth. But how many of you are thankful for what you've heard tonight? 
Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, free from confusion, free from counterfeits, free from tradition. But you need to know as we close tonight that it's not the intellectual knowledge of the truth that will make you free. It's what you do with it, friends. God brought us here not simply to inform the mind. He wants to transform the heart. He brought you to this seminar because he saw that you were seeking to the truth. You're wanting to know more. You're wanting to have a deeper experience with him. And so God has brought us here to a point of decision tonight. And friends, this decision may seem like a hard one. Because if I keep the Sabbath, some people say I, I might lose my job because my employer schedules me to work on Sabbath. So if I make the right decision and stand up and for the Sabbath, I might lose my job, people say. Or I might, my business might drop. Or I might, my, my friends might think I'm weird and you know, we make all these excuses, and it seems like a hard decision, but I want you to consider with me the decision that God had to make when man sinned. My friends, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had a very hard decision to make, and there were three options. How many? But only one choice. Option number one, we're closing. Let man die for the sin that he had chosen. God was not obligated to save us, friends. He could have let us perish. He made it clear that sin results in death. Man's sin, let him have what he chose. Option number two, change the law. Get rid of the law. Because where there's no law, there is no, no sin. No law, no sin. Get rid of the law. Change the law. And if God changes the law or puts aside the law, man is no longer a sinner and man doesn't have to die. Now, God would never do that because that's inconsistent with his character. But here's the point. God is not accountable to anybody. He is the sovereign Lord. He, he could do whatever he wants. Change the law. But then there was a third option. Thank God. There was a third option, friends. I will send my son to the world to keep the law perfectly in his life. And then after keeping the law perfectly, he would die a vicarious death in the place of man. My friends, that was the hardest choice. Oh, it would have been a lot easier to let man die. But Jesus, instead of choosing that, he would make the decision to die for you and me. Jesus would rather die than change his law. Rather than put aside the law so that man is not a sinner and man doesn't have to die, Jesus would go to the cross before he would ever change the law. We find a prophecy tonight where man just, they, they thought they could lightly just change the law. Friends, Jesus would rather go to the cross than ever do that. The cross stands as a testimony for eternity that the law of God can never be changed. Could the law of God be changed? Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross. Jesus would rather die than, than change the law. But more than that, friends, he would rather die than let you die. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. Keeping the Sabbath may seem hard, but what is that compared to the cross, friends? What is that compared to Calvary? Let's not make excuses and focus so much on what we have to sacrifice and what we have to change. Oh, Jesus has done enough, friends. 
And think about it. If God asks you in the judgment, why did you keep Sunday? What are you going to say? What verse, what verse will you point to? What biblical example will you cite? There's not even one. If God asks me in the judgment, Taj, why did you keep the Sabbath? You know what I'll say? Lord, what do you mean? Adam and Eve kept the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a part of the Ten Commandments, and Lord, you wrote that. Your son Jesus is my example. He kept the Sabbath. The early church kept it. Lord, we're going to continue to keep the Sabbath in heaven. What do you mean, why did I keep the Sabbath? I'll have lots of examples to point to. But if God said, why did you keep Sunday? There's not one verse to point to. So what will you say? Lord, if I kept the Sabbath, I might have, you know, it was just too hard, Lord. I might have lost my job. My son gave his life. You were worried about a job? That's why you didn't keep the Sabbath? But Lord, my pastor said it was okay. You know, he said, you know, Sunday one day is as good as another. My pastor said it was all right. So you listen to your pastor more than my word. But Lord, that's what everyone else did. I was just doing what everyone else did. So you follow the crowd instead of me. My friends, today, let's decide for Jesus. Let's put aside every excuse and every rationalization. And let's say, yes, Lord, I accept the naked truth, the truth that makes us free. My friends, it's a special sign of a special relationship. It's only for those who love Jesus. Oh, friends, do you love Jesus tonight? Do you? If you love Jesus, let me hear you say amen. Well, the one you claim to love is testing our love tonight. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So let's make that decision tonight. I want to invite the ushers now to come. There's a simple response card I want to give to you before you leave tonight. The ushers are passing it out right now very quickly. Would you please take a card and pass it down? And we will go through this card together. It's a very simple response card. Please take one, pass it down. The ushers are passing them out. Perhaps we could use a little bit more help. There's other ushers who can jump up and Help our brothers. The card says, come unto me. I will give you rest. That's what it's about, friends. It's about the rest that Jesus offers. And in this response card is an opportunity for you to just indicate your response tonight to the Lord. Please take a card and pass it down. If you don't have a card, raise your hand. I want to make sure that everyone has a card tonight. If you don't have one, raise your hand. If you need a writing utensil, uh, raise your hand. We want to make sure that everyone has one. Just before we dismiss, give you an opportunity to respond. The first box says, I am hearing about the Lord's seven-day Sabbath for the first time. Is this the first time you're hearing this? If so, would you check that box and indicate there you're hearing it for the first time? Never heard this before. The second box takes it further and it says, I understand that Jesus and the Bible teach the observance of the seven-day Sabbath. You've heard it and you understand that this is what the Bible teaches. If so, would you check that box? And then the third box takes it further. It says, because of my love for Jesus, so I know that you love Jesus, that's why you're here. Because of my love for Jesus, I want to lovingly remember to keep the seven-day Sabbath of Jesus. 
You want to not only be a hearer of the word, you want to be a doer of the word. You've heard this message, you understand it by God's grace because you love him. You want to start keeping the Sabbath. You want to learn what does, what does it mean to remember the Sabbath day. You want to enter into that special rest and obtain that special blessing. Check that box with all your heart tonight, friend. And then the last box says, I would like more reading material on the Sabbath topic. Maybe it wasn't clear. Maybe you didn't get the foundational subject. Maybe you just have other questions. If you like more reading material, check that box. Let us know. And then when you're finished, please write your name clearly so that we can read. Please put your information there. And the church you're currently a member of, would you please do that for us? Fill that out. We're going to collect the cards that we want to pray. Because we know, Lord, we, we know, friends, that it, it's hard when we, when we learn these truths. Sometimes it's hard to put into practice. And it's a battle. It's a struggle. And so we want to pray and be there to lift people up to the throne of grace that God will give you courage to walk in the light of truth. So please fill it out carefully. Put your information there. The church you're currently a member of, if you're finished, just go ahead and turn your card over. And now I invite you to pass it to the center aisles or the outward aisles. The ushers are coming now to collect the cards. Please turn in your card once you're finished. If you're not quite finished yet, you can turn it in after when we dismiss as you, as you leave tonight. But if you're finished, go ahead and uh, uh, turn in your card. And then we'll close with a word of prayer. Friends, we don't want to just share the message. We want to encourage people to follow the word of God. Amen. Please turn in your card. The ushers are coming now to collect them. Where are the ushers? Ushers are coming. Quickly, please. They're coming to, to grab these cards. Amen. My friends, remember, God only holds us accountable to the light we have. There's going to be many people in heaven who have kept Sunday all their lives. They've never heard about the Sabbath. But in these last days, God is wanting to lead us and guide us into all truth. So remember, friends, it's a privilege. It's not a burden to know truth. Yes, it's a great responsibility. But it's not a burden, it's a blessing. Jesus is asking us to take the next step in the journey. Tonight, we invite you to take that step with Jesus. If you have questions after we dismiss, let us know. If you have questions, please make sure you read the handout that has further information. Make sure you come to the follow-up sessions where we can sit down in a more intimate setting and go over the same information and entertain more questions. My friends, truth can stand for itself. Only so much we can say in an hour about a subject. And so please, make sure you continue to seek, in, uh, seek for the truth with all your heart. All right, well, why don't we bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you so much, dear God, for your love and your mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that has been in this place. Lord, you've sent to us the naked truth. And Lord, some of us who are hearing it for the first time, we're not sure. But Lord, I pray, we pray that your Holy Spirit will lead us, that you help us to discern between our own assumptions and biblical truth. Help us to be able to see the difference between the genuine and the counterfeit. And help us to know, Lord, that you send truth because you love us. Not, you're not trying to condemn, you're trying to save. Thank you for that, dear God. As we go home tonight, give us the grace and the willingness to study for ourselves, to check for ourselves. And may we not go by what man says, but only your word. May that be the foundation. 
And give us courage. As you make truth clear, Lord, give us courage to follow it. And as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, as your hearts are open to God in prayer, just before I finish this prayer, I want to ask you three questions tonight. Question number one, how many of you understood what you heard tonight? If so, would you raise your hand if you understood what you heard tonight? Raise your hand if you understood. God bless you. God bless you. Second question, you not only understood what you heard, but you believe what you heard. You see it from the Bible. It makes sense. And you believe what you heard tonight. If so, would you raise your hand? Oh, God bless you, friends. It was the Holy Spirit that helped you. Now our last question. You not only understood what you heard, you not only believe what you heard, but because you love Jesus, you want the grace, the courage to follow what you heard tonight. You want to follow the truth. You want to follow the Lord. If so, raise your hand. Oh, Lord, you see our hands and you see our heart. We are weak, but you are strong. So give us your strength now. Bless us and give us peace when we go home tonight. Bring us back tomorrow as we continue this journey in truth. In Christ's blessed name we pray. Let all of God's children say.